This is a Theology Matters podcast, and I'm here today with David Ferguson, who is the Regis Professor of Divinity at the University of Cambridge, where he has recently taken up this post after several decades of teaching at University of Edinburgh. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you, Josh. It's good to be with you. We're here to talk about uh, your your recent book, The Providence of God, a polyphonic approach. It came out a couple of years ago, but I know there's also a paperback edition out now, so I wanted a chance to talk to you about it. What led you to write this book? I've been working on the theology of providence for, for many years. Um, my interest in the subject was aroused a long time ago in graduate seminars in Oxford with J.R. Lucas, Anglican philosopher of religion, who offered some interesting revisions to to classical approaches. Um, My reformed background has also been significant. The the doctrine of providence has been foregrounded in the reformed tradition, and I've struggled with that both intellectually and pastorally over many years. I delivered the Warfield Lectures, uh, I I think, in 2009 on the subject of providence in Princeton, and I I wasn't entirely satisfied with the the outcomes of those lectures, so I I continued to to work at the subject, and eventually I got a year's research leave uh, from the Arts and Humanities Research Council in the UK, and that provided me with an opportunity to bring the, the project to completion. So... It's uh, to cut a long story short, it's been a long time in gestation, and uh, it was only in, in 2018 that uh, it, it found its way uh, into uh, published form. You, you sort of got to what my next question was going to be, which was how do you go about writing a book like this? I mean, on very practical terms, I, I was just curious about that. It obviously shows a lifetime of learning. It requires a knowledge of this wide tradition of Western thought going, you, you begin with the uh, pre-Christian ancient philosophy, ideas of providence, fate, chance, and so on. You go into the scriptural materials, you go into the early church to theologians like Thomas Aquinas, into the reform period, <clears throat> John Calvin, other reformers, and then into a chapter on product, on dispersals of, of providence and modernity, then into the 20th century, and then your own kind of normative theological proposals uh, in the conclusion. When you were sitting down to write this in 2016, around there, whenever it was, were you drawing on all the knowledge you'd accumulated in, in your career, or did you were you going back and doing a lot of reading in, in this whole history of materials? I, I suppose it was a bit of both. I, I had published a number of essays on providence and had worked in several of those areas. Um, But I I found when I tried to pull it all together, um, the the more constructive material uh, needed further attention. Uh, And in particular, what had happened to the theology of providence in the 20th century, when it it appears much more muted and tentative than at earlier periods in in Christian history. So there was an element of of new research that that had to be undertaken uh, once I came to the the final stages of of writing up the project. Um, But it it certainly did build on a a body of research that I'd I'd undertaken uh, over a period of years and and some of which had had already appeared. 
and my, it, 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 this book took me longer than any other that uh, I've I've written in, in my career, and I, I, I think in some ways it, it was more satisfying in, in that respect. Um, but there, there was still some fresh research being undertaken quite late in the day. Mm-hmm. The, I wanted to ask you about the subtitle of the book. The title is The Providence of God, the subtitle, A Polyphonic Approach. Maybe as a way to get into your approach, talk about what you mean by a polyphonic approach. Yes, the uh, I don't attach too much significance to the, the concept of a polyphony uh, other than uh, wanting to say that uh, providence is... is a distributed idea across the, the different doctrines of the Christian faith, um, rather than itself constituting a single discrete doctrine. And I, I, I wanted to develop that by showing that the, the providential works of God take many different forms. So to attempt to reduce these to, to one single model or, or to a, a doctrine that can be located uh, say within the first article, is to to attenuate the theology of providence to to distort it in ways that don't faithfully represent the, the plurality of of divine actions that we find in Scripture, and by by pointing to that plurality or diversity in terms of a polyphony, um, one, one might gain a, a better sense of, of the, the richness of, of divine providence um, as opposed to reducing it to, to any one single uh, theme or, or controlling idea. Maybe if we step back uh, thinking about people who, who may not have, have read the book or, or read anything about providence, how, how, do you des- how would you describe, you know, what are the concerns raised in this discussion of, of providence? What does providence mean? What does divine providence getting at yeah divine providence is about um the the oversight of nature and history by god it's also about uh guidance direction um involvement uh both in the intimate details of our personal lives as as well as in the, the wider forces that uh, shape history and, and nature. Um, it's, it's not a word that really appears much of at all in scripture with reference to, to, to divine action, but it, it quite quickly becomes uh, an important uh, concept in, in Christian theology, uh, largely through the influence of, of the providential thinking of the Stoics and the Platonists uh, during the time of the early church. So in one sense, the, the concept is imported, but it's, it's also adapted and developed um, to, to give expression to, to distinctively Christian insights. And it's, it's one that we, we tend to, to use um, pastorally, sometimes in a, a somewhat whimsical way when we refer to such and such an event being providential. Um, so it, it's definitely out there, it's it's been, as I said earlier, foregrounded in the the Protestant tradition, but it's it's also a Catholic doctrine. One finds it in the the, the, the Latin West during the Middle Ages. It's it's inflected in a somewhat different way in the the Greek Orthodox tradition, but it's, it's very much out there as an important theological theme, and it's it's one that has significant practical consequences 
So I, I, I try to sort of hold on to it, but uh, to, to develop it in ways that um, perhaps reflect some uneasiness on my part with uh, how the tradition has handled it. Um, I, I, I think to sort of say more about that, the, the tradition has suffered from what sometimes we call a meticulous account of providence as, as if every single event is intended by God, directly intended by God to fulfill some particular divine purpose. And our task is to sort of decode the, the event in order to uh, discern the purpose. I, I think that's to over-determine uh, divine providence and uh, creaturely history in ways that can be uh, counterproductive, um, if not at times dangerous. So the, the concept of providence that I develop is, is somewhat less determinist than the prevailing one in the Latin West, but it, it still attempts to, to be a strong doctrine of providence um, rather than seeing God in terms of distance, remoteness, or standing off from what is happening in the world. It's interesting, as you say, that there's this notion uh, out there that it's particularly Calvinism that has this understanding of providence. But as, as you know, and, and has been shown by many scholars in, in a certain sense, that this goes back to the Western tradition of, of theology, Augustine, Aquinas, and so on. How did that come to be seen so much uh, as a kind of particularly reformed or Calvinist idea? As you say, it is foregrounded more in Calvin but it's not that it's absent in the earlier Western tradition. Yes, I mean, that, that's a kind of interesting question with respect to the history of doctrine. Um, I, I can think of two or three reasons, perhaps, why it became foregrounded in Reformed theology. Um, Reformed theology, of course, is a strong sense of the sovereignty of God. Um, that, that appears in, in the Reformed confessions. It's, it's there in Calvin's Institutes. And that lends itself to this stronger sense that the, the providential hand of God is, is guiding everything that happens. Um, the, the doctrine of providence was also, as was the, the doctrine of predestination, with which it's closely connected in Reformed theology, intended primarily as a source of comfort and reassurance in the 16th century. Exiles were arriving in Geneva, uh, they had been persecuted in other parts of Europe. That they were refugees, really, from uh, religious persecution. And the, the the doctrine of providence is, in that context, intended as a consoling doctrine, and it, it has a, a powerful hold over the the reformed faithful. Uh, one sees this in the, the metrical psalms, the, the French Genevan Psalter, for example. Uh, as well as in the, the confessions and the catechisms uh, of the Reformed churches. So it, it's definitely a doctrine that's taken over from the Middle Ages. I mean, one finds it in the, the, the medieval schoolmen, but for, for various um, reasons that are, are both theological and contextual, it, it starts to assume a greater prominence in the, the Reformed tradition. It's, its treatment in the Heidelberg Catechism, for example, is a very good example of that. Mm -hmm. One of the things you discuss in the book uh, is a kind of tension between a purely philosophical account of 
providence tied to a philosophical account of, of the divine on the one hand, and the understanding of providence uh, found in the scriptures, which is in many ways more polyphonic to use the, the term of the subtitle, a multivalent conception. Uh, it's a more narrative conception of the providence of God, where, where we see in scripture and various scriptures, God acting, God responding to human agents, God even being said to change God's mind. Maybe speak to that that tension and how, in a way, your constructive proposal is is meant to try to recover some of that scriptural tradition over against the purely philosophical. Yes, I I was quite strongly influenced at key points by a number of biblical scholars, particularly Hebrew Bible scholars, who've pointed to ways in which God works interactively. Uh, throughout the, the history of Israel, there's there's even an element of improvisation in the work of God, dealing with uh, recalcitrant human and other creaturely materials. Uh, so that there's a kind of to and froing in the divine human encounter that, in, in part, is captured by the language of covenant and it's narrated in the the history of Israel, and um, it, it's there also. I, I, I think in, in elements of the, the wisdom literature. Um, so, and, and I suppose my, my own account of providence wants to uh, construe divine action, uh, not so much in ways that are entirely controlling, but in, in these more active and improvisory ways. Uh, so that, that is another uh, prevailing theme of the book. Um, the, the difficulty, of course, and, and this is what causes anxieties amongst other theologians, is, is that uh, you lose something of divine sovereignty. The, the, the world starts to um, mm -hmm. be construed as outside the, the control of God. Um, and I, I recognize that that's a, a challenge to which I have to respond. But I, I, I choose to, to accept that difficulty and to... Uh, deal with it as best I can because I, I I think this more interactive account of the divine human relations uh, is is adequate to scripture and in a way in which elements of the classical account were not. And I, I think I'll ask a bit later. It it also accords with religious and Christian practice, for example, practices of prayer, petition, and so on. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, I, I, I tried to develop a theology of intercessory prayer along those lines in the, the closing stages of the book. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that understanding of providence does, in, in some respects, enable us to make better sense of our lives as, as we live them forwards uh, with God uh, than, again, the, the classical account um, has, has tended to do. Now, that's not to say that exponents of the classical account can't offer uh, some responses to these um, objections. They, they, they have and they continue to do so. But on the whole, I, 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 you know, I prefer to go with this revisionist account mm -hmm. because of, partly because of some of the, the practical benefits that it offers. Maybe stepping back uh, to just get you to talk a bit about that classical account, which you, you call the Latin default position uh, in a key chapter. 
could you speak a bit more? You, you already have to some extent, but about the kind of contours of it and what you do see as the problems with it. You point at, at one point, you say it's theologically flawed and has dil, is deleterious in outcome. Maybe talk about what those theological flaws are and what the out, the deleterious outcomes are. And, and maybe then even making it a bigger question, what happens to that, that framework as we move into the modern period and a whole new framework arises? Yeah, the, the theological objection is, I, I think, twofold. Um, first, it, it, it assumes a, a degree of d- divine control and, and willing of everything that happens that it is at odds with, with Scripture, and it doesn't really make sense of the, the way in which the, the, the world is, is a work in progress. Um, it, it's, it's not the way God intends it to be um it, it god's intentions await some kind of eschatological outcome so the, there is a, a a wrestling that is going on um this is part of the story of scripture and the the the, the, the classical model i think does tend to suggest that everything that happens is the result of a perfect blueprint so that, that, that's one difficulty. And another difficulty, of course, is, is with creaturely freedom. Um, you know, does the, the classical account compromise uh, human freedom and responsibility? Now, that's a, a huge debate, of course. And, uh, and again, exponents of the classical account have uh, you know, offered some theories of free will, which make sense, both of divine determinism and uh, human responsibility. But... I, I remain unpersuaded of these and of the view that a stronger account of, of human freedom and, and responsibility um, re- requires some adjustment to this doctrine of particularly the primal will of God as the, the, the primary cause of everything that happens. And um, uh, we have something to learn in this respect from the, the Greek Orthodox tradition, which is, uh, has always tended to make that criticism of the Latin tradition. So it, it's, it's often helpful to, uh, to, to, to look at you know, rather different positions and perspectives and to um, consider how they see us. And I, I found it useful to, to look at some of the, the Greek Orthodox objections to the, the Latin account. And in particular, it's its failure to distinguish properly between divine permission and divine willing. Um, and that, that distinction tends to come in by the back door in the Western tradition simply because you can't do without it. But I, I think it's there in much stronger terms in the, the Eastern tradition, this distinction between what God wills and what God permits. And, and that's something that is in need of stronger appropriation today. So th- those are the kinds of theoretical objections that I uh, advanced against the, the so-called default Latin setting on providence. Um, pastorally, I, I think we have, in part as a result of the theology of providence, tended to interpret our misfortunes and sufferings as directly sent to us by God, um, whether as as punishment or as a, a form of discipline, and that has some 
bad outcomes, I think, that are not too difficult to identify in the way we have, um, or the way in which the church has, has sometimes counseled people in, in, in situations of pastoral distress. Um, I'm going to give a, an example that I came across more recently. The, the, the Westminster uh, Directory um, advises a pastor who's visiting a sick person to consider whether their sickness might be the result of some grievous sin that they have committed. So they're, they're instructed to examine themselves um, while they, they lie there um, stricken with some illness or disease. That, that, that I, I, mean, I don't think there are many people that would regard that as good pastoral counsel nowadays. Um, on the other side, it's also led to a certain Christian triumphalism an assumption that um, God is on the side of the winners. Uh, we see this particularly in the imperial projects of the 18th and 19th centuries, um, that somehow their, their success in, in forms of ex imperial expansion is a sign of divine blessing. It's, uh, they are the agents of God's providence in spreading civilization, faith to the ends of the, the earth. And uh, that, 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 again, is, is a, a reading of divine providence, which uh, tends to collapse in the 20th century, certainly after the First World War, uh, and again, problematizes it in, in fairly obvious ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit about, you know, even just as an example, you talk about the Lisbon earthquake of 1755 and how this single event had such an impact on, in a sense, on... Uh, people's understanding of providence, sort of changing their view of, of how could this happen? How could uh, an earthquake come through and, and just destroy so many people's lives if God is all powerful and all knowing and, and all loving? Um, but maybe you could speak a bit about that. Yes, the, the Lisbon earthquake is a, is a kind of hinge event for European intellectuals. It, it seems to call in question any easy optimism about divine providence at work in nature and history. Um, it was an event that in many ways traumatized uh, Europe uh, as it was um, reported around the continent. And Voltaire, of course, uh, parodied Leibniz's theodicy, um, his claim that this is the best of all possible worlds in, in light of what had happened in, in Lisbon. So uh, Christian intellectuals, uh, I think, start to become a bit more defensive um, in, in their approaches after the, the Lisbon earthquake. Uh, the problem of evil becomes a, a major challenge that many philosophers and theologians feel the need to uh, respond to. Um, on the other hand, uh, Christian intellectuals and Christian societies, if you like, more generally do continue to see the, the providence of God at work in the, the general course of nature and history um, through the, the 19th century. Uh, so the, the doctrine of providence in its traditional form is certainly not abandoned. Um, if, if anything, it intensifies um, in the, uh, the second half of the 19th century. It's, it's almost as if that's the heyday of uh, providential theology. Um, and it's, it's only really after the trauma of the Great War that um, that 
confidence in a somewhat easy affirmation of, of divine providence um, collapses and we, we start to have more somber, chastened, deflated accounts of divine providence in the theologies of the 20th century. So th th there is a, a kind of um, interesting and somewhat complex historical story that needs to be told about providentialism throughout the modern period. Um, but the, the Lisbon earthquake provides a, a very interesting and dramatic uh, case study um, in the middle of the, the 18th century, in the middle of the Enlightenment. Yeah, I have so many questions. I'm trying to think of where to go with it. I mean, one is, could you speak a bit about some of these theologies of the 20th century in the wake of the Great War, how they tried to reformulate providence? Uh, yes. Some of them sought to rearticulate providence in ways that continued to affirm the, the key tenets of, of the traditional doctrine while arguing that the, the evidence for these was not as, as widespread or, or obvious, really, as, as earlier exponents had claimed. So the, the, there is this uh, epistemological darkening of, of the theology of providence in those theologians who, who were willing to tackle the subject in the 20th century, there, there may be more of them we think. Uh, Langdon Gilkey wrote a, an article in the 1960s arguing that uh, providence had, had really been forgotten uh, in the 20th century. That, that's, uh, I think, an overstatement, but um, th those few people that did tackle the subject um, did so in a way that made it clear that they were conscious of and chastened by some of the lessons that they'd learned about earlier approaches to providence, um, particularly in, in light of the, the, the Great War. Um, so um, Berkauer and Bart in the Reformed tradition, um, Gary Grulagrange, great uh, Thomist figure, um, they, they did write about providence, um, but, but in this uh, much more somber way. Um, other theologians, uh, I mean, the most obvious group would be process theologians, uh, really abandoned the traditional idea altogether uh, and worked along more synergist lines of, of, of a God who was seeking to persuade the world, but um, had, had much less power and control over what was happening than, than had traditionally been assumed. So you, you, you do start to see some, some radically different uh, approaches appearing um, around this time. Um, the process theology is not the only one, but it, it certainly was, was very visible from, from Whitehead onwards um, after the 1920s. Yeah, one of the things you, you talk about is you mentioned the word theodicy, the, the attempt to kind of come up with a formulation that accounts for why there is evil in the world and how that can be justified, even in light of the existence of God. And you talk about how, you know, more recently, there's a lot of pushback against theodicy in theological circles. There's a kind of 
sense that it's offensive to even try to justify the, the existence of evils in, in the world. And so people come up with other conceptions of protest or practical uh, accounts to fight against evil rather than to kind of justify it. You, you have a kind of nuanced position. You, you uh, acknowledge those claims, you see them as important, uh, but you also have an interesting point where you say, you know, who are we, we being theologians, to prevent people from raising intellectual questions with us about evil. And, uh, you know, you tell this story about a parishioner you had when you were a minister who she had this uh, tumor in her job. Well, maybe you could tell the story, but it, it raised, it was a perfect example. I thought of how people in their everyday lives do raise these sort of questions of, of theodicy. Yes. Uh, um, this was a woman, a Mrs. Moore who was, member of the church in which I was an associate minister in the mid-1980s, and, and she suffered um, a horrible cancer of, of the mouth, um, which required extensive surgery. And I went to visit her in hospital, and her jaw was wired up, and she had tubes down her throat and was unable to speak. And she had a, a notebook and a pencil at her bedside. And I, I asked her how she was, and she, she wrote down one word, uh, why, question mark. Mm. And I had to say to her, I don't know, um, because I didn't have a good answer to that question. And I, I thought it foolish to pretend otherwise. So we, we, we sat there in silence for some time and she pressed my hand and there, there was very little else to say, but she did, I think, remind me of the way in which people in those pastoral situations do at least want to hear what the church has had to say about the problem of evil. And I, I think we have a responsibility to um, offer them the, the the arguments of theodicy to e explain why these are, are are limited and in the end why they they might not work. But I, I think it's not really on just to say that th this whole process is so sort of morally corrupting that we're not willing to engage with it at all. I, I don't find that to be pastorally productive. Um, there, there may even be a, a danger of a, a assuming a kind of higher moral ground um, above those who, who have wrestled with these questions. And, and some theologians in, in recent times have worked very hard and impressively, I think of Marilyn Adams and Eleanor Stump. And in, in the end, why, although I think I can't go all the way with them, in terms of the theodicies that they present, they, they, they are worthy of serious consideration. And if we are to, in the end, say to people that we don't have an adequate answer to the problem of evil, we, I think we should at least explore with them the kinds of answers that have been given and explain why these may not be adequate at the end of the day. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that was part of what I had to say in the course of this. Um, the, the other point I wanted to make about theology of providence is that it shouldn't make the problem of evil um, even worse than it already is. And I, I worry a bit that some of the 
the traditional formulations do that, um, as does the doctrine of predestination at certain points. Um, so we, we shouldn't uh, compound the problem or uh, uh, nor at the same time pre pretend that it's the job of a theology of providence to solve the problem of evil. So, yeah, I'm trying to sort of steer a, a mid-course here um, be, between these two. Um, it's, it's not about solving the problem of evil. Yeah. Um, that is not the burden of a theology of providence, but uh, nor is it the case that we should simply ignore theodicy. Um, and we, we certainly shouldn't make the problem of evil any more severe than it already is in, in what we have to say about divine providence. And does the way in which it's made more severe by attributing the evil sort of directly to God's will, is that sort of what you mean? Um, yes, I th that, that's right. I, I think the, the failure properly to distinguish divine permission from divine willing is, um, is you know, the problem here. Um, and, and that does compound the problem of evil. Now, of course, you know, a critic can come back and say, well, What's the difference between divine permitting and divine willing? Um, and it's not easy to give a, a full answer to that, but I, I think we have some sense as parents of, of the difference between controlling our children and uh, permitting them a certain degree of latitude in, in what they choose to do themselves. And... Um, I, I think we need to try to work with that distinction theologically as, as best we can. Maybe just as a, a last question, you know, you've been talking about the, the idea of suffering and, and evil and, and how providence relates. And you conclude the book with a practical theology of providence, which I thought was a very helpful chapter. It's, it's not all the whole book is you've got a long history of, of ideas and of of history of theology, but you do end with a very pragmatic kind of uh, discussion of what this has to say about the life of prayer for Christians and, and religious people more broadly, for politics, how we think about the whole history of politics, how we think about the, the governance of the world today in divine terms, and, and then suffering, which we've kind of already been talking about. How do we think about prayer, for example, or politics? There's, there's, there's a kind of movement you talk about as with in taking prayer as an example, to move it more towards sort of a, a meditation where there's no petition, there's no intercession. It's more about sort of aligning oneself or being attuned with God, but you want to sort of hold on to a, perhaps a, a more traditional idea of actually in some ways trying to ask God for things and to in some ways have some influence on the world through prayer. Yes, that's right. I, I, you know, want to affirm attunement um, as uh, an important element of prayer um, that, that seems to me to be part of what we're doing when we pray it, it's uh, it, it's not that I wish to dismiss that but I, I also think that our prayers do have a petitionary element um, for example when we pray for the sick and the the presupposition of praying in that way is that our prayers might make some difference to the people for whom we are praying. And I, I try to make some sense of that, though it's, it's difficult. Um, and it, it's, it's really about 
steering a path between praying for occasional miracles, which I, mean, I think most of us don't expect, and just resigning ourselves to the fact that our prayers are, are nothing more than you know, a form of aligning our own wills to that of God, their, their strategies for acceptance or even resignation. So um, I, I don't think that's very helpful either. So I, I, I've tried to work out a, a form of divine human interaction in this context that, that might show how praying for somebody else um, can make some difference to them as, as well as to us. And uh, while, of course, there are, there are formidable difficulties there, it does seem to me important that theologians at least make some attempt to explain to people what, what we think they're doing or what we're doing when we engage in petitionary prayer. And, and actually, at this point, I, I did find the process theologians to be uh, quite helpful, indeed, a bit more helpful than some others, um, with, with their um, notions of, of persuasion and, and spiritual interaction. So I, I, I found uh, some help from quarters that I maybe didn't expect at that point in the, the, the discussion. Um, the politics, um, it, it, some students have said to me they were a bit disappointed by my, my politics as, as they emerged in the closing chapter. They, they felt that the that the whole project was moving along the lines of very necessary deconstruction of, of a certain kind of providentialism. And they, they expected the, the sort of political judgments um, to be more uh, critical and negative than they were in the end. Um, my, I, I, that, that might be a misunderstanding, which possibly I'm responsible for. Um, I, I, I do think the, the prophetic register of criticism is, is a very important one and, and needs to be grasped much more firmly than it was in the past. Um, but I, I also wanted to see the politics of providence in, in terms of um, a, a degree of critical conservation. Um, conservation is one of the works of God. And I, I was writing much of this at a time of emerging populism in the West which is, is quite destructive of some of the institutions that we have traditionally cherished. Uh, uh, so I, I wanted to say that, you know, that, that there may be times when we, we actually want to conserve the best in our traditions rather than simply to subject it to relentless criticism and deconstruction. And uh, that, that was the point I was seeking to make in that section. Um, Burke says somewhere that uh, if we believe in an institution then we should be willing to reform it. And uh, I think that's quite a good balance. It needs to be struck in a politics of providence. We can't say no yeah. to everything. Right. No, I, I, I found that to actually be very, a very uh, helpful section in, in, in the midst of a, a chapter as a whole that I found very, very helpful. Uh, and the book as a whole, I want to commend it to, to anyone. The Providence of God, a Polyphonic Approach, published by Cambridge University Press by David Ferguson. Uh, last question. Do you have a, an another project coming up that you want to talk about? <laughs> well, I've started a, a one-volume systematics that mm -hmm. uh, attempts to sort of bring together material that I've been teaching for many years 
Um, I, I fear that's going to be even more polyphonic uh, <laughs> since uh, what I've been teaching over the years is, is certainly not consistent. So um, this will no doubt take me longer than I anticipate at this stage, but um, I've always been a great admirer of uh, Hendrikos Berkov's Christian Faith, which was a textbook from the late 70s, early 80s, and, and also of Dan Meliori's Faith Seeking Understanding, which has been the most durable textbook in, in my teaching career. And um, uh, these have provided a kind of model from, for what I'm trying to do next, but um, I suspect having moved institution and being in a different location now here in Cambridge, I, I may have some further ideas and thoughts that will uh, reshape what I, I have to say in the next book. Well, we look forward to having you back on the podcast to discuss that in the not too distant future, David, but thanks for being on to discuss this book. Thank you, Josh.